We were there last week. We're going to be there again this week. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one there in the pew that you could use. Uh, you can get on your smartphone or tablet or something. We like to recommend the Version Bible app. One way or another, find your way to Ephesians chapter 1 because we're going to be there and, and dwell there for a bit this morning. It's the last Sunday of October. And I have to admit, October is my favorite time of the year. And it has nothing to do, it has nothing to do with banana uh, pudding, although I like banana pudding. In fact, it has nothing to do with Pastor Appreciation Month, although I appreciate uh, all the kindness you show me and our, my family. I like October because it is around about this time of the year that McDonald's brings back the McRib. And I am a fan. In fact, I was listening to the news this week, and this is what got me thinking about it. I was listening to the news this week, and they announced that the McRib was coming back to McDonald's, and I was so excited. I got in the car. I drove to They don't have them yet, but they promised me that they're coming. Oh, I love McRibs. Do you remember McRib sandwiches? Yeah. Do you like McRib sandwiches? Uh-huh. I guess that's a divisive opinion here this morning. McRibs were invented back in the early 1980s. I think it was 1981. Uh, McDonald's had just come out with their chicken McNuggets. Um, hard to believe that back then everywhere didn't have chicken McNuggets, but I think it's 79 that McDonald's invented the chicken McNugget, and those were so popular, McDonald's couldn't make enough chicken McNuggets to have in all of their stores. And so in order to give those other stores something new to have, the genius master chef... Is that an oxymoron to talk about a master chef at McDonald's? But it's true, the master chef at McDonald's invented the McRib, and I have been enjoying them ever since. I love the McRib sandwich. Well, I should clarify, though. I love the McRib sandwich for about 10 days. You know, I can eat about two, maybe three of them, and then they get old. Yeah, admit it, you do too. You, you do. In fact, this is the genius of McDonald's marketing scheme. They keep taking them away and bringing them back and taking them away and bringing them back so we forget how awful they are and we go order a few of them and enjoy them and by the time we're tired of them, they're off, off the menu. I think this is like the 15th annual farewell tour for the McRib coming up here at McDonald's. When it's new, I love the McRib, but pretty soon... It gets old. I, that's my question for you today. Do you remember, not your first McRib, but maybe, do you remember when it was new? Do you remember when it was new? We have a tendency as human beings, we have a tendency to think that something is awesome at first. And a lot of times it is awesome, maybe not as awesome as the McRib, but it's awesome at first and we love it and we're gung-ho about it until it's no longer new. And then we begin to take it for granted, and the newness of a thing begins to wear off until it loses its luster, right? That's part of human nature. We do that. We experience that as humans. It's been around for a long time. In fact, it's been around so long we're not even sure who the first person to say Familiarity breeds contempt. We don't even know who that was because humans have been living that way for so long. It's not just McRibs. There are other things that are awesome at first. You're so excited at first. And then the newness wears off. I feel that way about having kids. And I, no, I'm not talking about children. I love my children. I'm, 
I was asking around the table, dinner table last night, I was asking about examples of this. What is something that is awesome at first and then gets old real quick? And McKinsey said feeding goats. <laughs> you know, there's nothing more fun than bottle feeding a baby goat until you have to get up at 4 a.m. to do it. And then the newness wears off. And by the time you've done it for three months, you cannot wait for those goats to be weaned so you don't have to do it anymore. Excite- do you remember when it was new? That toy you you got for Christmas, right? So excited to unwrap it, couldn't wait to open it up, begged Dad to to get it out of the box. And then three weeks later, how about the way you felt on the first day of school? So excited about school for about ten days, kind of like McRib. So excited for school for about ten days, and then, do I have to? I remember the first day I walked into my office at the Southdale Church of the Nazarene. Brand new, brand new church, brand new place to serve, brand new congregation. I was so excited. Just, I just wanted to be in the office just to be in the office. You know, I still feel that way. No, I don't. Not every day. Not every day. The newness. No. The first time I ever took Michelle out on a date. You can make fun of me, but you do it too. You do it too. Now you see where the danger begins to lie. Because it's okay to talk about McRibs getting old and the newness wearing off of feeding baby goats. When you're talking about people you love, when you're talking about relationships... There's a danger in that, isn't there? When familiarity begins to breed contempt and you find yourself wishing, I just wish I could go back to win. How do you avoid? Forget about McRibs, they're not important. But in those areas where it's important, how do you avoid getting to the place where you take something for granted? until the newness wears off. My suggestion today is that one of the ways we avoid getting to that place in our life is by not taking things for granted. The way you get to keep from getting to the place where you take things for granted is by intentionally not taking them for granted. The way you avoid getting to the place where you take things for granted is by intentionally cultivating the attitude of gratitude. Hey, that rhymes. Intentionally cultivating thankfulness. You say, hold on, this is October, not November. Isn't this supposed to be for next month? Well, maybe. But thanksgiving, thankfulness is how we avoid that taking something for granted. And so we teach ourselves and we teach our children to be grateful. And it's not just us. The followers of God, the, the, the people who belong to the covenants of God, have made a point about returning thanks for a long time. Not just Christians. The Jews, before Christianity, did it as well. There was an emphasis on, on giving thanks to God for the many good things that He has given to us. 
blessing God for all the ways that He has blessed us. And in fact, they did it so often, the Jews, they did it so often, they even had a name for that kind of thanksgiving, that kind of prayer. Uh, one of those prayers was called a barakah, and the plural of that is barakot. Uh, Jewish prayers of thanksgiving typically always begin the same way. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam. Blessed are you, Lord, God of the God, King of the universe. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe. And then they would say what they were thankful for. Blessed are you, God, King of the universe, who has blessed us in this way or that. They would tell God what they were. Blessed are you, God, for blessing us in this way. For example. An observant, especially an Orthodox Jew, very first thing they do in the morning when they first open their eyes is to bless God for blessing them. Ivrim, and probably butchered the pronunciation of that. But they start their day with the prayer, Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who restores the eyes of the blind. They start the day thanking God that they were able to open their eyes. As they get dressed, they begin to put on their tallit with the tzitzit, I think that's how you say it, the, the, the robe with the fringes to remind them of the law. They bless God. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has commanded us regarding the commandment of the fringes. They thank God as they get dressed. As they sit down to a meal, as before they sit down to the meal, they wash and they dry their hands. And as they're drying their hands, blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with His commandments and commanded us concerning the drying of our hands. As they sit around the table and prepare to break bread together, blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. As they pour the wine and begin to drink, blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. As evening begins to fall, if it's a Friday evening, they light the candles to mark the beginning of Shabbat. And they pray, blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us and commanded us to light the Shabbat candles. They have prayers for all sort, blessing God for all his many blessings. In fact, there are so many of them in the Talmud. In a commentary on the law, the collection of the teaching of the rabbis in the Talmud, there is an entire book, an entire tractate devoted to the various barakot, the different blessings. And at least one of those rabbis collected in the Torah, at least one of them says it is the duty of every single Jew to pray a barakah, to pray one of these blessings at least 100 times a day. All day long, blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, for this and for that. All day long praying, blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe. They don't want to forget where their blessings come from. They don't want to get to the place where the newness wears off and they begin to take for granted what God has done for them. And so they pray, Blessed are you, 
Lord our God, King of the universe. Have your Bibles open. Ephesians chapter 1 is an epistle. It's, it is a letter. I can't really go into it in great detail this morning, but we assume this letter was written by Paul and was written at least in part to the church in Ephesus. There's some scholars that debate whether it was Paul or one of Paul's students, one of Paul's disciples collecting Paul's teachings. And, you know, I don't really get into that. It says it was written by Paul, and if you're going to tell me it was written by somebody else, you'd probably better have pretty solid evidence of that, and that evidence isn't there in my opinion. So I read this as Paul's own letter. And it does appear to have been written to a group of churches intended to be an encyclical passed along from church to church, copied and distributed to the other churches in the area. So it's not just to Ephesus, but to the churches in Ephesus and around. But it was written by Paul, at least in part, to the church in Ephesus. And one of the things we know about the church in Ephesus is that they were a church that understood how familiarity can breed contempt. How the newness can wear off. How they can get to the place where they take things for granted. If you remember from the book of Revelation, Ephesus is the church to whom through John, Jesus himself writes a letter. And in the letter to Ephesus in Revelation, Jesus warns them about the danger. He admonishes them because they have forgotten their first love. The newness had worn off the relationship. They were still doing the right things. They were still loyal and faithful. And Jesus commends them for their obedience, but he warns them that they're forgetting their first love. And he challenges them to go back and do the things that they did. Do again the things you did at first. So Ephesus was a church that knew that the newness can wear off. And in addressing that church, this is before Revelation, the book of Revelation, but in addressing that same church, this church that has a tendency to forget their first love, Paul begins with the old Jewish practice of gratitude, of giving thanks. Verses 1 and verse 2 of Ephesians chapter 1 is the kind of the introductory remarks. It, it tells who it's from. It's from Paul. It tells who it's to, to the churches at Ephesus and others. It, it prays that they would receive grace and peace. It's in verse 3 that the actual body of the letter begins and it begins with one of these barakahs, barakot, begins with a barakah, a prayer of blessing. If you have your Bibles open, Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he. Hold on a second. You know, this translation really, I don't know. It does a good job of capturing it, but it does not really 
It, it conveys the essence, but I, I don't think it fully grasps the, the way Paul gets so wrapped up in this prayer of thanksgiving. In fact, Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 3 through verse 14, uh, the NIV, the, what I was reading from here, breaks it up into various sentences. There are periods and capital letters and, and, and new thoughts. And that, that really isn't how Paul writes this. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, in Paul's own language, is one long sentence. One idea after another after another, just tumbling out, all wrapped up in each other. And the result is is quite possibly the longest sentence in the entire New Testament. Read that in several places this week, but I don't believe everything I read, neither should you. I didn't really have time to go check it out myself. They say it, I can't prove it to you, but if it's not the longest, it's certainly up there. One of the longest sentences. In fact, at least one person I read this week said it's not only the longest sentence in in the New Testament, it's the longest sentence in, in Koine Greek, the language. I don't know how they would know that, but that's what they said. It's one thing after another. When Paul starts praying, it's like it all just kind of tumbles out of him one after another. So if you'd let me, I'd like to read from a... I normally read from the NIV. I'd like to read from a different translation this morning. I told you a couple weeks ago, you've been so kind to me, I... I will use part of your gifts to me to purchase a, a new translation of the New Testament by a scholar by the name of David Bentley Hart. And really, you should never just use one translation, but at least in this passage, I think he does an excellent job of of fairly literal translation here. So if you'd let me, I'd like to read it out of this translation, David Bentley Hart's translation of Ephesians 1. Starting at verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God... See, NIV doesn't even capture, fully capture... This is a blessing. Barakot, same words, different language, not Hebrew, Greek, but same words here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the Anointed, who has in the Anointed blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the cosmos that we might be holy and immaculate before Him in love, marking us out in advance for filial adoption to Himself through Jesus the Anointed according to His will's delight for the praise of the glory of His grace with which He has graced us in the Beloved One in whom by whose blood we have the fee for liberation, the forgiveness of trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He has caused to abound for us in all wisdom and understanding, making known to us the mystery of His will, which was His purpose in Him for a husbandry of the season's fullness, to recapitulate all things in the anointed, the things in the heavens and the things on earth, in Him in whom we too received our lot, being marked out in advance according to the purpose of the one who enacts all things in accord with the counsel of His will, so that we who first hoped in the anointed might be for the praise of His glory, in whom you also hearing the word of truth, the good things of your salvation, and having faith in him, 
were sealed with the Spirit of the promise, the Holy One, who is an earnest of our inheritance until the liberation fee is paid for what has been procured for the praise of His glory. Full stop. See what I mean? You probably couldn't even follow all of that. It just all tumbles together. Once Paul begins blessing God for what God has done for us, it all just pours out of him one thought after another after another. Paul hasn't forgotten. Paul hasn't forgotten what God has done for him. And he overflows with thanksgiving as he prays this prayer. A blessing. Of course, the result is something that's hard for us to untangle. You know, it's a beautiful tapestry woven together of all of these praises, one after another. But eventually, those run-on sentences become hard to decipher. Editors today would have told told Paul, "You got to go back and rewrite this. That sentence is way too long. They'll never follow it." But Paul didn't have an editor to do that, so we have to try to untangle it ourselves. And there are a lot of different ways to approach this text. Uh, Not that one way is better than another. This is just the way I've chosen for this morning. I feel led in this way. One of the things I wanted to focus on is what has God done? So in order to make sense of all of these thoughts strung together, I tried to focus on the verbs. Today, I just in the time we have, I'd like you to look at the verbs for which Paul praises God. In those 14 verses, there are seven, it's not 14, whatever it is, 12 verses, there are are seven verbs. Not counting participles, there are seven verbs. Four of them have to do with what God has done for us. Paul is blessing God for blessing us. We might say, well, what has God done? Paul says, let me tell you four things. If you look at verse 4, Paul tells us that God chose us. He elected us. He selected us. He made us. His, he chose us. And Paul goes on, he clarifies, God didn't just choose us because he saw how good we were and how worthy we were. God chose us in advance. Chose us before we could deserve anything. He chose us. And this is not some sort of exclusive selection of God picking and choosing, I like you, I don't like you, I like you. That's not what I believe is going on here. God chose us. Every single person in this room and every single person in this world, God chose. He chose us to be holy and blameless in His sight. That's His desire for us. That was His plan for us before we were ever born, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. You say, I don't know that I will ever be blameless. (laughs) Paul says, holy and blameless in love. We may never get to the place where our obedience is perfect, where where we are fully able to to do everything that we desire, where where our power matches our will. As human beings, we're not God. There will always be a difference between what we desire and what we can accomplish. But in love, we can be blameless. So filled with His love that there's not room for anything else. And yes, we might make mistakes in how we translate that love into action, but we love Him and we love others. That's what He chose for us. Holy and blameless in love. But not just to be holy and blameless. 
He also chose us, Paul says, to be adopted as his sons. And about half of you are thinking, well, that's not fair. I want to be adopted as a daughter. No, you don't. Not back then. Nowadays, you can be adopted as a daughter and it would be okay. But you don't want to be adopted as a daughter back then. Because a daughter has no inheritance rights. Uh, it's not right, it's not the way I would order my society, but in that culture, in Roman culture, you did not you did not get a share. In Jewish culture, you did not get a share. You were pretty much at the mercy of your male relatives. But men and women alike, Paul says, God chose to adopt all of us as his sons. Sons and daughters, men and women, males and females, all of us are brought into his families with full rights of inheritance. Heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ, regardless of whether we're men or women, we're all adopted into his family with full rights of inheritance. That's what he chose us for. That's not all he did. Verse 6 says he graced us. He, He poured grace out on us. Given to us, Paul says, in the Beloved, in Jesus, God has made grace and mercy abound to us. More than we could ever fathom, more than we could ever deserve. In fact, so much grace, the third verb Paul uses, is that he lavished us with that grace. He did not just give us a little bit of grace. He did not very carefully dole out His grace so that we would have what we needed and no more. He has extravagantly given us grace in place of grace already given. So quote Paul from elsewhere. Grace upon grace upon grace. He has just heaped it on us. And not just that. Verse 9 tells us that He also purposed In all of this grace, in all of this choosing, He had a purpose and a plan. In ages past, it was a mystery. It was hidden. Prophets just got glimpses of it and longed to understand. But He had a plan. And in Jesus Christ, what was a mystery has been revealed. His eternal plan and purpose in the fullness of time has been unveiled to us. And He is gifting and gracing us so that we can be a part of this purpose and this plan. You ask me what God has done for us, that's what He's done. He chose me, He graced me, He lavished me, and He made me a part of His purpose. Think that makes a difference? Oh, Paul says you better believe it makes a difference. I told you there were seven verbs in this passage. Four of them have to do with what God did for us. The other three talk about the difference God's grace has made in us who believe. The other three verses have to do with the benefits we receive because of what God has done. In verse 7, in verse 7, Paul says we have we have redemption. That word redemption means to buy back at a price. To rescue out of slavery by paying the price for our freedom. In that grace, we have 
redemption, but that's not all. Verse 11 says something, and I don't even know what it says. It's a difficult verb to translate. It could go one of two ways. It's not a very common verb, and certainly not commonly used in this context. The root of the verb is is the word for inherit, to inherit something. But rather than being active, this is passive tense. Active is something I do. Passive is something that is done to me. So how do you passively inherit something? You see what I mean? It's tough to wrap our heads around. And it can, it can be taken one of two ways. I think both of them have some truth. Verse 11 may say, and there are translations that translate it this way, including the NIV. Verse 11 may say that in him we have received an inheritance. We have been made inheritors. Adopted into his family as sons, we now have an inheritance. And aren't you thankful for that? That's true. But really, it seems to me that this verb might mean something else. Most literally, what this verb means is not to receive an inheritance, but to become an inheritance. We don't only have an inheritance from God. We have become His precious possession. We are the heritage that He treasures. We have been made His treasured possession. See what I mean? I think both of those things are true. Then in verse 13... Verse 13, we're told that we are sealed. With His Holy Spirit, we have been sealed. He has placed His mark of ownership on us. It's part of what a seal does. It identifies us as His own. The other part of a seal is that it was used for protection. To place your seal on something was to promise that you would guard and preserve that thing. He has not only said, you belong to me, He says, I keep what belongs to me. You are mine and I will treasure you until the day of redemption. About you, but when I start thinking about all of that, I start thinking about that, some of the new some of the oldness rubs off, some of the newness comes back. When I start thinking about just how much God has done for me, it's awfully hard to take that for granted. You probably noticed, I try not to, but you probably noticed after a month of Sundays that Pastor Appreciation Month always makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. It makes me feel a little bit awkward. I, I've never been really good at receiving appreciation. I just not, not the way I'm wired, I guess. And I always wonder what to say and what to do. In the back of my mind, uh, the, the thought that's running through my mind is these people, you all, are being way kinder to me than I could ever deserve. You are so generous to my family and I. And it makes me just a little bit uncomfortable because I don't know how to deal with that. But it also kind of makes me 
want to be a little bit more worthy. Your kindness challenges me to to try to do better. And if your kindness to me is beyond what I deserve, how much more of the kindness that God has shown to us? You have been way kinder to me than I could ever be worthy of, but it's, it's not even a pale shadow of the grace that he's given to me. Never. I could never. If I could deserve it, it wouldn't be grace. I could never deserve that. Makes me want to go, why? Seriously, why? Why me? God, why would you? Why would you do this? (laughs) Paul seems to understand that too. Because in these verses we read this morning, three times he tells us why. In verses 5 and 6, Paul says, God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace. You catch that there? He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of the glory of His grace. In case you read right past that, Paul comes back to that idea again in verse 12. 12, talking about his inheritance as a member of the old covenant people of God, now brought into the new covenant in Jesus Christ, as one of the Jews to whom salvation first came and then later to the Gentiles, Paul writes in verse 12, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. And if you still missed it, he comes back to it again in the next two verses. Because it's not just about Paul as as a Jew being to the praise of God's glory. In verse 13 and 14, he says, When you believed, you too were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. In this passage, three times, Paul says God is giving us this grace. He is showing us this kindness that we might be to the praise of His glory. That the kindness and grace and mercy He has shown to us might make His goodness more fully seen in our world. Talk about unmerited grace being more than we could deserve Kindness, making us want to do a little bit better. Doesn't thinking about all that God has blessed you with make you want to just be a little bit more worthy of that goodness? To live the kind of life that reveals His glory? I gotta finish up. But for a month now, we've been, for two months now, we've been singing, God, you're so good, right? God, you're so good. God, you're so good to me. I'm blessed. I'm called. I'm healed. I'm whole. I'm saved in Jesus' name. 
highly favored, anointed, filled with your power. Talk about grace beyond what we deserve. But it's all for the glory of your name.